Schism, a formal division within or separation from a church or religious body over some doctrinal difference. Episode 1. Why would an Egyptian speak Greek? Welcome to the first episode of Schism's Religion Divided. Over the course of roughly the next year, we'll be exploring the theological, social, and political developments that ended with the Schism of 451, after the Council of Chalcedon. This is when what would become the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, Syriac Orthodox Church of Antioch, Armenian Apostolic Church, Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, Eritrean Orthodox Tewahedo Church, and the Malankara Orthodox Syrian Church, which are collectively known as the Oriental Orthodox Churches, would separate from the rest of Christianity, a division that has continued for more than 1,500 years. And it is worth noting that the Oriental Orthodox Churches, which are all in communion with each other, consider themselves to be the one holy Catholic Orthodox and Apostolic Church founded by Jesus Christ and their bishops to be the rightful successors of the Apostles. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which wouldn't split for another 600 years after this first schism, each also believe that they are the one holy Catholic Orthodox and Apostolic Church founded by Jesus Christ and their bishops to be the rightful successors of the Apostles. With the schisms, yeah, they always think that they're, each side thinks they're right and that they are the true successors. Now, there are roughly 60 to 70 million Oriental Orthodox Christians today. They're mostly found in Ethiopia, Eritrea, Egypt, Armenia, India, and Syria. And while this number pales in comparison with the roughly 2 billion Christians who do accept the Council of Chalcedon, it's still a pretty substantial number. To put this in perspective, the Oriental Orthodox churches are roughly the size of the Anglican Communion or the Assemblies of God. And they're about the size of the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Southern Baptists, Mormons, and Methodists combined. And they are also relevant to world politics. There is currently, as of recording, a fight between the U.S. Congress and President over a resolution that passed near unanimously in both the House and Senate, acknowledging that the Armenian genocide happened. And when we hear about the religious violence in Egypt, the victims in Egypt are almost always Coptic churches, and those Armenians were mostly members of the Armenian Apostolic Church. These are both cases of Muslims attacking, killing Oriental Orthodox Christians. They are definitely relevant to the modern world. And if we were to just look at the theology fight of the Council of Chalcedon, the fight that led to this split, we wouldn't even be getting half of the picture. Because to understand theology, we need to understand the politics of the time that it was set. And to understand politics, we need to understand geography. Let's pause for a moment and talk about some of the limitations and set some ground rules for this podcast. First, history is an art, not a science. It's a story of the past that is created by comparing ancient texts and past written histories. These are, as much as possible, compared to archaeological discoveries, 
But to turn that into a coherent narrative often requires reading between the lines and exercising some literary license to fill in a few gaps. And I will try to keep that to a minimum. But there are a lot of points that are also contested, where there are multiple viewpoints. Some of those disagreements are more theological in nature, while others are more historical in nature. But they are still disagreements, and it is hard to say almost anything that is universally accepted. So this will be, uh, yeah, I will get things wrong, and I will say things that there are sources to support, and there are sources that disagree. Uh, Unfortunately, that is just a a reality of history and of historical studies. We all want to have a firm grasp on the who, what, when, where, and why of the past, but the further back in history you go, the weaker and weaker the available data gets. Books and letters can get lost, destroyed, or just rot away. In more human environments, very few old texts have survived, and this area we're looking at is mostly humid areas, and they have a tendency to survive much better in the desert. The educated elite tend to live in cities where there's lots of water near the coast, and the deserts are where you tend to find nomads, extremists, and eccentrics. We also have a very long period of time, commonly referred to as the Dark Ages, where the clergy and the church were the only ones who were literate and the ones with control of all of the old documents. And they did a very good job of preserving the ones they wanted and making sure the ones they didn't wouldn't survive. On top of that, in this first season, we'll be dealing with a time period where Christianity went from being a persecuted fringe group in the Roman Empire to the official religion of Rome. There was a lot of official and unofficial suppression of that religion and of various groups within the religion and destruction of their texts. The old adage, history is written by the victors, is certainly true here. But the Christian victors, once they won the favor of the empire, used that power to burn the loser's version of history. One major point that I also need to make is that we will not be trying to determine who's right or wrong. We are going to be looking at who believed what and why, and why they disagreed. Our main story will be taking place in an area that wraps around the Mediterranean, from Rome to Egypt, and we will rarely stray more than 60 kilometers or 40 miles from the coast. Of course, we will stray quite a ways from that today. The leaders of this first great schism both have the title of Pope. These were the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Alexandria. The Bishop of Rome spoke Latin while the Bishop of Alexandria spoke Greek. As for why an Egyptian bishop spoke Greek, we need to go quite a ways back further in time. And in college, I studied quite a bit of Greek. Uh, I took about two and a half years worth in my undergraduate. And in that, that study, we started off with studying Attic Greek, the Greek of classical Athens, which was a Greek city-state that was under the subjugation and constant threat of the Persian or Achaemenid Empire. 
And our story really needs to start with those barbarians. The term barbarian comes from the ancient Greek word barbaros. Well, yes, that word has been used as a pejorative term to describe the native inhabitants of lands being conquered by modern empires. It was originally coined by the democratic city-states of ancient Greece that couldn't figure out how to maintain their freedoms, liberties, and cultures from the impending doom of the invasions from the Achaemenid Empire. Sure, the term probably had pejorative roots to describe anyone who didn't speak some dialect of Greek. But by the end of the Greek city-states, it almost always referred to the Persians, especially when used as a proper noun. This was enough of a relationship that my textbook said that the Greek word barbaros meant Persian. In 550 BCE, or BC, whichever you prefer, Cyrus revolted against the Median Empire. He defeated them within three years and took their capital, Ekbatana. He then declared that he was the successor of the Median Empire and assumed control of the entire empire. With taking over, he also inherited the enemies of the empire and lost the allegiances of some of their vassals and allies. The king of Lydia, whose kingdom bordered the Greek city-states, tried to take advantage of the change in leadership and take the Median territories in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, or Anatolia, whichever one you want to call it. Cyrus responded to the king of Lydia with a counterattack that ended with a conquest of the Lydian kingdom, putting him right on Greece's back door. Cyrus then turned his attention to the revolts from the tributary kingdoms and tribes in Central Asia. Once he finished with them, he moved on to conquer the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and in freeing the Judean captives and authorizing the reconstruction of Jerusalem and building of the second temple, he was declared Yahweh's anointed one by the Jews. Of course, this was part of trying to make all of the lands that had been conquered by Babylon loyal subjects of his empire and willing participants in his army. As far as rebuilding the temple, he authorized and paid for the rebuilding of a lot of temples. He wanted to let all of the people he freed rebuild their temples to their gods such that he might be able to get as much favor from those gods as to be called a god's anointed one. After Cyrus the Great died, he was succeeded by his son, Cambyses II, who conquered Egypt and subjugated Libya. And then he reportedly went mad, murdered his wife, several other family members, several high officials, until he was killed, possibly by a pair of magi, one of whom looked enough like Sam Bicey's brother that he'd already had killed that he got away with being the one on the throne for a few months as a pretender until he was also killed. Eventually, all the leaders decided on making Darius the new emperor, who expanded the empire basically to the borders of Carthage and North Africa, modern Bulgaria, Romania, and Crimea, Armenia, and well up into the stands above Afghanistan and the Indus River in India. This is when the fights against the Greeks really started, and the subjugation of Macedonia also really got going in earnest, sometimes being under direct control and other times just being a puppet or ally. Since they kept failing in their attempts to conquer Greece, the Persians, starting with Artaxerxes, began going with a policy of strengthening Athens' enemies. Divide and conquer. By this time, we're into the late 5th century BCE. Interestingly, 
During this same time period, there was a lot of cultural exchange going on between Greece, especially Macedonia, and Persia, resulting in the cultures blending such that the Persian Empire was already partially Hellenized. Or perhaps we could say Greekified. And Greece was also getting Persianified, enough that maybe we might as well call it Hellistan, since Stan is the Persian word for a place for a people, and Greek people in Greek are Hellenes. Therefore, Hellistan. Sorry if you don't like that joke, but hey, I've got to try and get something in here. <laughs> Less than 100 years later, one of the subject kingdoms of the Persians and a reliable enemy of Athens, Macedonia, had a king with a different idea on how to handle things. And by this time, the Achaemenid Empire had weakened and shrunk enough that Macedonian king Philip II was able to expand his territory and subjugate Thrace, which stood between his lands and Persia over in Asia Minor. And by Persia, I mean the Persian Empire. He joined in with the series of wars between Athens and the other city-states, and then once they finally had peace, he consolidated his control of the lands that he'd conquered or subjugated and then turned to diplomacy, being chiefly responsible for forming the League of Corinth with all city-states except Sparta and being the leader of the council and commander-in-chief of their combined armed forces, despite not officially being a member of the League. They believed that Persia was about to invade Greece again, so they began preparations to be able to fight back or even better, preemptively invade Asia Minor which at that time was the western frontier of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. Right before the invasion was about to begin, Philip was marrying yet another wife, because he broke with the Greek tradition of being monogamous, and they were going to have another son that would possibly be a threat to Philip's son, Alexander. And Philip was assassinated. This was possibly by Alexander III, better known as Alexander the Great. Um, but maybe not. That's one of those details that is not quite solid in history. Once Philip was dead, Alexander was immediately proclaimed by the assembly of the army and aristocrats to be the king. And if the army backs you, then you definitely have the power. He wasted little time before crossing the Bosphorus and invading the Achaemenid Empire, and once he started, he never lost the battle that he commanded himself. In just 13 years' time, he successfully defeated the Achaemenid Emperor enough times that one of his generals assassinated him and conquered the entire empire. To be fair, just like his hero Cyrus the Great before him, when you killed the Emperor, if you've managed to win the admiration of the army you've been fighting— you've got a pretty good chance that they'll switch sides, and then it's just a matter of dealing with every satrap or governor who thinks that he can take advantage of the situation, and that's exactly what Alexander did. Unfortunately, when you've built up a massive empire by the age of 32 and your only heir is an infant, let's just say those loyal generals who helped build that empire might just build their own after you die, and that's exactly what happened. By the time the dust settled from Alexander's untimely death, which was a 
tumultuous period, and that's quite the understatement, that lasted longer than Alexander's entire reign, with his brother and son being puppets of one of the generals, the four generals finally decided to just split the empire. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus took Thrace and Western and Northern Asia Minor. Seleucius won Nicator, took the rest of the Asian holdings. And Ptolemy won Soter, took the African holdings. And a little bit of, you know, Palestine and Syria. Considering the hundreds of years of the Persian Empire and the hundred plus years of Greek cultural influences spreading in and the fact that Alexander never lost a battle and the fact that the Achaemenid Empire was already losing territory and getting weak enough that they could be overthrown by little old Macedonia and a few Greek city-state allies, it's not surprising that Alexander's generals were able to maintain control. One thing worth pointing out here is that these four generals would all continue to fight each other until almost the very end, more than 200 years later. Seleucius I Nicator created the Seleucid Empire with a capital of Seleucia on the Tigris River, named after himself, of course. And that was the capital from 305 to 240 BCE when it was moved to Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey, but if the border had been drawn more reasonably in modern times, it would be in Syria. And the capital was there from 240 BCE to 63 BCE when it was conquered by Rome. And interestingly, Antioch was founded by Seleucius I Nicator uh, and named after his father. The core of the empire, essentially modern Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, was really pretty stable for a good 200 years. Sure, the Indus was lost pretty early on, before the close of the 4th century BC, but at the conclusion of the war, an alliance was formed, and the Seleucids maintained good relations with India throughout. In the 3rd century, they lost their territories in modern Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the rest of Central Asia. But some of these broke off to establish Hellenistic kingdoms of their own. And one of those groups that broke away were the Parthians, who they'll come back. <laughs> the second century found the Seleucids bumping heads with Rome, and rather than taking Greece, they lost almost all of Anatolia. This was also around the time of the Maccabean Revolt in Judea, which coincided with the Parthians continuing to expand, pushing the border further and further west, taking basically all of modern Iran, and the Seleucids continued to weaken and weaken. Now, this is a great time to talk more about Hellenism. For the most part, it happened naturally and started with the cultural exchange between the Greek city-states and the Achaemenid Empire that we talked about earlier. Alexander definitely pushed it, encouraging his soldiers to marry locals and actively trying to blend the cultures as much as he could while showing a lot of respect for the local culture and religions. This continued after Alexander and the Seleucids are a great example of it. Greece was overpopulated, so there was a lot of immigration from Greece and Macedonia to the cities across the Seleucid Empire and other Hellenistic kingdoms. Since the language of government was Greek and the Greeks were given extra prestige, it quickly became the language of commerce and the common tongue, at least in the cities. Cultural changes in rural areas are, are always slower 
but certainly happened there too. Along with language, the local and Greek cultures also merged, as did their religious practices, and eventually the Seleucids decided they needed to push a common Greek ethnic identity across the vast multi-ethnic empire to avoid losing it. This was when they started exerting more pressure to Hellenize, which wasn't an issue for most, but it was for the Jews. And the Jews were different than everybody else because they were monotheistic, and even the ones who believed that their god wasn't the only one still wouldn't worship any other gods. The worship of the gods was an important part of the Hellenistic culture, so they exerted more and more pressure to get the Jews to act and live more like Greeks and less like Jews. Some went along with this, but others, led by the Maccabees, did not and rose up in revolt and were eventually successful in breaking away. By the end of the 2nd century, the Seleucid Empire was weak and unstable enough that no one wanted to bother with them. Eventually, Armenia took most of the remaining lands, and when Rome arrived in 63 BCE, they decided that the Seleucids were far too unstable to be able to set up a client relationship with so it was incorporated in the empire as the province of Syria. Let's move back to Alexander's conquest of Egypt. When he invaded Egypt, he defeated the Persian rulers and traveled upstream to Memphis, the cultural and religious center of Egypt. He visited the Oracle of Amun in the Siwa Oasis, where he was declared the son of Amun. He then appointed Macedonians to replace the Persians in running the government and established a Greek city, Alexandria, to serve as the capital. And this was on the site of an old Persian fort. After Alexander's death, Ptolemy was appointed satrap, or governor, and he fought off the other generals to maintain control of Egypt. Finally, in 305 BCE, he declared himself pharaoh. The Hellenization of Egypt was a process that had started several centuries before when Greek merchants set up trading post colonies and served as advisors for the Egyptian government. This was back in like the New Kingdom period. Most of the Greeks stayed on through the Persian years, but once the country was ruled by Greeks, Greeks continued to move in, establishing more colonies and Greek cities and settling across the country, much like what we saw up with the Seleucids. Ptolemy won Soter, as he styled himself, and Soter means savior, created the Museum and Library of Alexandria, and fully funded their establishment as the leading research center of the Hellenistic world. The head, libra the head librarian was even made a part of the royal household as tutor to the crown prince. The Ptolemies, yes, all male successors, took the first name Ptolemy, quickly began to adopt a lot of the Egyptian culture. They actively participated in the Egyptian religion. They built new temples to the Egyptian gods. They created new cults, merging Greek and Egyptian traditions. They eventually began to be worshipped as gods themselves. The choice of the title Pharaoh, rather than king, was also to help gain the acceptance of the locals, as well as adopting the sibling marriage of the older native kingdoms following the path of the Osiris myth. As time progressed, the Greek colonists and native Egyptian populations mixed, creating a sizable minority of educated Greek-speaking people, mostly in the cities. 
Militarily, the Ptolemies spread their territory and domination across Libya, right up to the border with Carthage, up the Nile to Kush, and across Sinai into the Levant. While Judea was under Seleucid control at the time of the Maccabean Revolt, they'd actually spent much of the Hellenistic area under Ptolemaic rule. Much like with their neighbors to the north, the constant fighting was very expensive, and the country weakened, lost territory, and was eventually conquered by Rome. In the case of the Ptolemies, it was gradual, with Rome taking advantage of any dynastic struggles to gain influence, and as inbreeding took its toll, Rome was there to gain more and more influence until the Roman Senate was set up as the mediator for royal disputes and served as protector of a dying kingdom. Their final end happened after Rome seized full control after the death of Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra who was a lover of multiple Caesars in 30 BCE. While Hellenism is often viewed as Greek culture dominating and supplanting the native local cultures in the areas conquered by Alexander the Great, it was never that simple. It was a process that started centuries before, as ancient Greece was a place where new ideas were able to flourish. So, of course, those would spread into kingdoms, empires, and civilizations that they traded with. Then, with much of Southwest and Central Asia, as well as Northeastern Africa, being dominated by Macedonian In Greek aristocracies, there was further blending and sharing of thoughts, beliefs, cultures, and languages, until by the time Egypt, Syria, and Asia Minor were all under Roman control, anywhere you went would find people who spoke Greek with roughly the same culture and roughly the same gods, even if they used different names for those gods. In a lot of ways, this is similar to the more recent creation of of the Latin cultures of Mexico, Central, and South America, as well as the Caribbean, where the local variations are largely caused by the different native tribes of the area, while there is still an incredibly strong common set of elements that can be found anywhere you go. And despite the Hellenistic era generally being thought to have ended with Rome, it continued in Egypt, Palestine, and Syria until the Arab conquest of the 7th century CE, And it continued in Asia Minor until the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453. And Hellenism is why Greek was the early major language of Christianity. It's why the New Testament was written in Greek. And it's why the Bishop of Alexandria spoke Greek. Well, this wraps up our first episode. We'll be back in two weeks with the Roman Empire. And then in February, we'll be talking about the Jewish diaspora and paganism. And in March, we'll be actually starting to talk about Christianity more direct as we will address its rise, early theological development, and heresies eventually making our way to the fight that led to schism. If you'd like to contact me, you can send me email at podcast at schismpod.com, and you can find our website at schismpod.com. The music used in this podcast was Tabuk by Kevin McLeod. 
We're still getting on social media sites, uh, but you can find us on Twitter at SchismPod. This has been a Nomad Studio production.